the Lord spoke to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and tell them, When you enter the land that I am giving you and, and you reap its harvest, you are to bring the first sheaf of your harvest to the priest. He will present the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. The priest is to present it on the day after the Sabbath. On the day you present the sheaf, you are to offer a year-old lamb without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. Its grain offering is to be four quarts of fine flour mixed with oil as a food offering to the Lord, a pleasing aroma, and its drink offering will be one quart of wine. You must not eat bread, roasted grain, or any new grain until this very day, and until you have brought the offering to your God. This is a permanent statute throughout your generations where you live. <clears throat> and that's Leviticus 23, verses 9 through 14. Maybe a bit early when you listen to this or read this, but let me just say my favorite three words of the year. He is risen. And who would think that just this seemingly insignificant event on the biblical calendar, the presentation of the first sheaf of the barley harvest, on the day after the Sabbath during the Passover week, also known as the Week of Unleavened Bread, you know, um... For us, so far removed from the context of their lives, it doesn't seem like a huge deal. But this was the day when the barley that had been harvested that year could actually be eaten in the form of barley bread, roasted heads of barley, or however else you wanted to eat it. As barley was the poor man's food, this was especially important to those who were vulnerable. If they could not afford wheat, and many could not, this was what they ate all year for their bread. When Yeshua, or you may call him Jesus, multiplied the loaves and fishes, the loaves were small barley rolls. It's the food of the resurrection, the food that peasants would most identify with. It's symbolic of the unexpected Messiah. Hi, I'm Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome to Character in Context, where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of Scripture with an eye to developing the character of our Messiah. If you prefer written material, I have six years' worth of blogs at theancientbridge.com, as well as my six books available on Amazon, including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it, called Context for Kids, and I have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids. You can find the links for those on my website. Past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com, and transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com. If uh, you have kids, I also have a weekly broadcast where I teach them Bible context in a way that shows them why they can trust God and how he wants to have a relationship with them through the Messiah. All scripture this week will be quoted from the Christian Standard Bible. I will be sticking with the ESV through the end of the Gospel of Mark, but when I begin teaching Matthew, we're going to make a switch to the CSB. You know, my friend Matt, who is a Torah teacher who is getting his Ph.D. in Old Testament studies. He hooked me up with this version that he uses in his teachings, and it reads so well that, you know, I use it for the kids already, and I'm going to start using it for the adults, too. Now, Paul... Oh, excuse me. I am just having... I'm, I'm having, like, sinus fun today. Excuse me. All right, so... 
Paul refers to Yeshua as the first fruits. Uh, the first fruits offering on a few occasions, and today we're going to talk about why, as well as discuss what the big deal about the resurrection is and why it was the single most important event in history. It still is. And why it's more important than the cross or the nativity of you know, the birth story. Uh, we take the crucifixion and resurrection really for granted nowadays, but it was a very controversial thing in the ancient world. A shames, shameful, nonsensical kind of thing that both Jews and Gentiles had problems dealing with. Even Paul called it foolishness and a stumbling block in First uh, Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 through 25. But why? Let's look at what he says. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what he preached. For the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. I just want to say amen to that. <laughs> yeah, really. Now, why was the crucifixion and the resurrection so controversial uh, when we see it as absolutely normal today? Now, for the Jews, uh, the claims were tantamount to the allowance of human sacrifice. And although Yeshua served the purpose of a sacrifice in that he he was that korban, which is the Hebrew word uh, translated sacrifice, which means to draw near, and that is what a sacrifice did. It allowed the offerer to draw near to Yahweh in some way. Now Yeshua came, which was, you know, Yahweh taking the initiative to draw near to us instead of the other way around. Yeshua, it's not the first time in history either. That's, that's what the whole, that was what the Exodus was about. That was a tabernacle about it. Yahweh making the effort to draw near to us. But, you know, Yeshua came to die by the hands of the Romans, but through the insistence and even manipulation of the chief priests, who, you know, the cronies of Annas and Caiaphas. Not that Pilate hated killing innocent people, mind you. He was a truly evil man, all right? Um, despite the chief priests, he would rather have released Yeshua and executed the Lestes, um, Barabbas, one of the social bandits uh, plaguing the land in the decades before the destruction of the temple. But the entire idea of the Yahweh warrior of Isaiah, a Messiah who would die instead of kill forgive the Gentiles instead of slaughter them of the fullness of deity dwelling in someone who could be killed. It was unthinkable. It was a stumbling block and an offense of the highest caliber. You know, just the sort of thing Yahweh likes to do to show that he makes the rules independent of our expectations and hopes. He's God. We're not. Now for the Gentiles, um, AKA the Greeks, the Hellenistic world, it was every bit as bad 
And it was so offensive and foolish to them that a god could die by human hands that, you know, we see graffiti about it carved into a wall near the Palatine Hill in Rome, which is one of the seven hills in Rome, of a man with the head of a donkey nailed to uh, the traditional cross with the epithet Alexamenos worships his god. It, uh, it was a boys' school during the time, and you know how boys are. And this was sometime during the late second or third century, depicting Yeshua as a donkey god, which was a uh, grave insult. So Christianity was viewed as a superstition because it didn't mesh easily with Judaism's messianic ideals, you know, as seen in their later embrace of uh, Shimon Bar Kokhba in the early second century, and in the fact that there would be no formal mentioning of a suffering Messiah until the Pasikta Rabadi in the 8th century. This put the early believers in Yeshua who found themselves on the outskirts of Judaism and on a completely different planet than the Romans, you know, in a tough position. <clears throat> they weren't meeting anyone's expectations for a genuine religion. <clears throat> now, Another problem with the Greeks and the more Hellenized Jews, and of course, by this point, and this surprises some people, all of Judaism was Hellenized in ways large and small, and it still is. Um, from the codification of the Torah as a law code with all these regulations, instead of the wisdom literature it originally served as, um, you know, the way they set up their schools and their synagogues, etc., um, so they have this, um, in the area of philosophy, they had some issues with the whole crucifixion and resurrection thing. Um, there was this big push in some circles that the physical world is a bad thing instead of something created by God to be good. So for Yeshua to have a real body in the first place was grossly offensive to them. And so the docetes got around this horrifying claim by saying that Yeshua had a celestial body, uh, a phantasm, that only appeared to be human. Therefore, he didn't die, and he wasn't resurrected. Now, this was declared a heresy at the First Council of Nicaea, and, you know, we'll talk about the problem with this belief in a bit. Now, others were so embarrassed by the crucifixion, um claiming as divine and also as king someone who was weak enough to be tortured by mere mortals and killed and and not just killed but in the way the lowest of the low were killed displayed naked on a cross and mocked and who didn't even last a few days before dying um so they claim that he didn't die he just fainted and the romans were too stupid to figure it out you know those kind of workarounds. And the closest I can come to relating the shame of the crucifixion um, to them back then would be in modern times having a relative who was a convicted serial child molester caught in the act. Now that visceral reaction of disgust and shame that you just had, that's what it was like to have a friend or relative crucified. Even if they were innocent, didn't matter. Now the problem with finding a ways 
ways around the crucifixion being as terrible as it was, um, is that now the resurrection becomes meaningless and everything about our faith hinges on that resurrection. Now, what did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 14? Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? If there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain. And so is your faith. Now, why were people saying that there is no resurrection from the dead? Well, we can credit that to Gnostic beliefs that, as I mentioned briefly before, the physical world is evil, and the best thing that can happen to us is escape our physical bodies and this physical world, you know, where we have to eat and use the toilet and we can get hurt and sick. And, you know, the, the goal is to become spirits at one with the universe or at one with God. Now, this is known as dualism which can be found in Christianity today, even though the Bible clearly says that the resurrection gave Yeshua and will give us a real physical body that can eat and be touched. Now, dualists believe that God hates bodies, but the resurrection is proof that he cares very much about bodies. When we talk about dying and going to heaven as spirits or becoming ghosts or whatever, that's dualism. The concept of life apart from the body, because life um, can actually be distinct from it. God created us to be part and parcel with our bodies. That was how he chose to be imaged by his image bearers. Not to be disembodied spirits, but complete humans. But all this was developed because the reality of Yeshua and what he did was so upside down and countered, and countered everything that everyone had ever believed, you know, both Jew and Gentile. And, and this is why prophecy is never clear ahead of time. The Jewish scholars weren't idiots. The truth was hidden and can only be seen in retrospect, which is why everyone who has ever predicted end time events based on what they think is clearly spelled out, has been proven wrong for thousands of years, Jew and Gentile alike. Um, you know, so much of <clears throat> Yeshua's ministry was about bodies. And he never told anyone that we would ever not have one. Yeshua spent so much time curing the sick, cleansing the lepers, uh, making it so that the blind could see, the lame walk, the deaf hear. You know, he filled stomachs. He restored the unclean to their families and communities, and he raised the dead. Uh, but why on earth would he raise the dead if they were better off dead as spirits without bodies? He wouldn't. So, and of course, you know, here is where we have to talk about how raising the dead and resurrection are so entirely different. Now, if you ever played an online MMO, which is a massively multiplier online computer game, and I, I used to be an addict, so yeah, I, I've done it. Not in, uh, like 12 years though. <laughs> you know that when you die and come back to life, you have your same body, but like your armor's damaged, okay? Your body isn't new. It can get killed again. And it does over and over again, you know? <laughs> but that's what Yeshua did for Lazarus. Uh, for Jairus's daughter, the widow's son, and what Elijah and Elisha did for those boys as well. 
those people were fixed, but they all had normal bodies that could get sick, die of old age, or be killed. There was nothing special about them or their bodies, even though, you know, what happened to them was totally cool. What happened to them was more like a video game res. Um, resurrection is entirely different. Resurrection is so different that if it didn't happen, then Yeshua died as a criminal, shamed, handed over to the enemy, never experienced vindication, making every claim he made empty, every miracle just something he did, possibly by, you know, collaborating with Beelzebul, his teachings blasphemy, his predictions of the end of the temple coincidental, and almost, the almost complete overturning of polytheism in the Western world, inexplicable. <clears throat> Resurrection is a honking big deal, all right? Resurrection was the vindication of Yeshua. That he was everything he claimed to be. That his miracles were the outworking of the gospel. That the kingdom of heaven was finally invading earth. And would begin to conquer to the ends of the earth. You know, and that Yahweh was um, finally bringing the Gentiles back into the family. After narrowing humanity down to one family for the express purpose of creating the Messiah who would undo the curses of the garden and bring humanity back into balance and into relationship with the creator as it was meant to be in the beginning. Um, and as Adam and Eve were stones in that living garden temple and were meant to create more living stones but failed, you know, Yeshua instead filled Yahweh's promise to Eve. But it required something far greater than being raised from the dead. A body raised from the dead is just as sinful and susceptible to death as it was before it died in the first place. Resurrection, which is what Yeshua experienced, uh, is what we are seated with now, but will experience the fullness of later. It is also our vindication. In the end and also in the here and now, that what we say and believe about Yeshua is true. We are vindicated in part now because of how the new creation life grows from that seed of resurrection and radically changes us, and we will be vindicated fully in the great resurrection. Um, now, I want to go back to talking about uh, Yom Bikurim, Yom Habikurim, the uh, day of first fruits. Um, because Paul mentions it with respect to the resurrections, you know, Yeshua's resurrection and ours. Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves, who have the Spirit as firstfruits, we also groan within ourselves 
eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope because who hopes for what he sees? Now if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly await it with patience. Now, of course, this is Romans and absolutely as clear as mud, but the reference to first fruits is so incredibly important. Before that um, bikurim waving of the sheaf of uh, barley, absolutely no one could enjoy the benefits of the new crop. That first fruits of the harvest had to be presented to God, hence Yeshua's warning to Mary Magdalene not to touch him because he had not yet ascended to the Father, and that's John 20, beginning in verse 14. This was his first high priestly duty, in my opinion. Presenting himself as that um, first fruit offering to Yahweh in the heavenly temple as the first fruits of the dead, thereby inaugurating the new creation existence in all who believe. Now, this is not the same as some people claim that the patriarchs and all the faithful before this are like in hell or something like that. But in the eternal way of looking at things, Yeshua, Messiah, Christ, whatever, is always and has always been first. The lamb slain from the foundation of the world, as uh, 1 Peter 1 Revelation 13 claim. As Hebrews tell us, Yeshua could not be priest while alive. That's Hebrews 8.4. But he has been given a superior priesthood in a superior temple, one which has never and never will be abandoned by the spirit of Yahweh due to the sins of mankind, as we saw in Ezekiel's vision. Um, and the spirit never returned to the holy of holies of the second temple. Yeshua himself would never even have gone beyond the court of Israel in the second temple. Uh, unless he himself performed the hand-leaning ceremony briefly on the head of an animal, animal brought as a hagiga, which is a festival offering. But he is the one and only high priest in the greater temple, shown to Moses atop the mountain. Everything else is a shadow. Um, and this picture of the presentation of the body of Yeshua as first fruits is meant to fill us with the same sort of hunger that the poor and vulnerable experienced when the new barley crop was being presented. Just a little while and we can taste that new harvest. Just a little while longer and we'll be satisfied with something even greater. And not only us, but all of creation with us. You know, there's nothing wrong with um, the planet that we haven't done to it. All right. Creation's longing for our renewal for its own sake. It is greatly desiring that we and our wasteful, destructive, selfish ways are changed forever. Not only will glory be revealed to us, but also in us. And creation has been waiting, as it were, on pins and needles because we have subjected it to futility. We were supposed to expand Eden, but instead we expanded our egos, our waistlines, and our demands. Or is that just me? Um, and yet, you know, once saved, we feel that seed within us that grows and overtakes the flesh. Um, little by little, slowly, <laughs> we begin to change and we keep changing because like all those barley presentations at the temple pointing to something greater, the seed of resurrection inside us is just the beginning. Paul says that we eagerly await for it, wait for it with patience and Boy, is that a non sequitur. 
which is something that doesn't make sense in the natural world. Eagerly waiting for something with patience. I've never been able to really do that, I don't think. Oh my gosh. <clears throat> anyway, we're coming to the uh, end of the uh, first half hour here. And although these are no longer uh, airing regularly on the radio, I'm still uh, I'm still keeping it to the 25 and 25 format just because if I ever decide to have these on the radio again someday, if I want to keep up with them every single week along with Context for Kids, I, uh, yeah, just setting it up so it won't be a problem. Anyway, I will be back. Rosenquist, and welcome back to the second half of Character in Context. This week we are talking about the Day of First Fruits um, during the Passover week, uh, as well as the resurrection and why the resurrection is so important, why the resurrection is a non-negotiable, why the resurrection was hotly contested in by different sects, and you know why we're going to get into uh, in this half hour. Why the resurrection is so vital. All right. So, uh, we had just read, let's look, um, Romans 8. And, uh, we're looking at, um, like Paul and, um, James's, uh, references to first fruits. Now, James echoes the same sentiments as Paul in, uh, his epistle. So this is James chapter 1, verses, verse 18, by his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So different than the first fruits of the sun, first fruits of his creatures, because, you know, we're the created. Now, we have this same idea. Creation is waiting for our redemption. Our rebirth leads to the conditions through which the world can also experience and enjoy rebirth. But it has to start with us because we're the problem here. <laughs> you know, imagine creation groaning hopelessly before the resurrection of Yeshua. Now, remember I talked about how people were adverse to the idea of a physical resurrection among the quote-unquote Greeks? Um, by this time, within Judaism, only the Sadducees were holdouts for believing in a general resurrection of the faithful from the dead. And, you know, with how wicked the Sadducees were, you know, you can see why they would not want to believe that they would ever face God. But the Essenes, the Pharisees, and your average faithful Jew were anticipating the resurrection. So this wasn't any big shock. Now, the shock was the idea that the Gentiles would be included. And also the idea that it wasn't going to happen all at once, that somebody would go ahead of time and it wasn't Abraham. All right. Now, you know, the idea that the Gentiles were going to be included was um, incredibly offensive after, you know, 600 years of being trodden underfoot by the Babylonians, Persians, Medes, Greeks, and Romans. Gentiles were there to be conquered, and a select few, you know, were around to be, they, they decided to be proselytes and they were okay. 
For the Gentiles, however, who felt that the best blessing of all would be to shed their physical bodies and become one with God spiritually, uh, some were ardently denying the resurrection. They didn't want it, and they were causing problems in Corinth, which was a Roman calling in Greece. It wasn't Greek. It was in Greece, but the Romans destroyed Corinth, and they repopulated it <coughs> with retired military. Okay. First uh, Corinthians fifteen twelve. We're back to uh, Paul now. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? If there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified wrongly about God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are all still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. That's because they were, you know, it wasn't an easy life. Um, but as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, who is the first fruits, and afterward it is coming those who belong to Christ. Now, I suppose folks, you know, wanted it both ways. Either they were buying into the phantasm theory of a fake body and therefore no death and no resurrection, meaning that how everyone saw Yeshua after the empty tomb was just him finally showing his true phantasmic form. Or he never really died at all. Or he died, but the resurrection was a colossal hoax. Um, if Christ is raised from the dead, but we aren't, it means that we will never be vindicated as being on the right side of history. Everyone who has ever died will stay dead. And when Yeshua said that Yahweh was the God of the living and not the dead in Mark 12, and he also said in Matthew, probably Luke 2, then he would have been lying. And if the resurrection is a lie, then Yeshua wasn't raised either. I mean, you know, what would be the point? Yeshua is either the first of many or he died for absolutely no reason. We're still dead in our sins. And we'd be so, so pathetic and deluded. But I know, you know, I know what I've been through over the last... 23 years, and none of it's been my own doing. I have not liked the changes as I'm going through them. I wouldn't have chosen them. But, you know, that seed of new creation, that spark of eternal life has this way of growing like that darned mustard seed, and it pushes everything out little by little. You know, just as the kingdom spreads through the world, eternal life, resurrection spreads through us. The earth still suffers, and so do we, but we are both changing. But as Paul tells the Corinthians, Yeshua is that fulfillment of the Bikurim, the first fruits, the first of a great harvest, and not the only sheaf that was ever produced. Um, just imagine if the priest waved the only sheaf of barley at the temple and there was no more. 
Why would people even care? What would it mean? It's only the abundance of the harvest that glorifies God's provision, and it's the same with us. If only Yeshua is raised, then it is to Yahweh's shame. And on that day in the biblical calendar, only on that one day, you know, or it, it becomes meaningless that day. When, you know, we find so much richness and depth in all the other biblical, you know, holy days. You, no, I don't think so, right? But before we go further into 1 Corinthians 15, I want to share something very personal about the resurrection. And no, you don't have to believe me because it was my dream and I can't prove anything. You know, really be scared of folks who want to tell you what to do or believe based on dreams. I won't do that. Anyway, I guess it was about 12 years ago, and in my dream, I saw a woman walking up to me. It was the Jewish comedian Gilda Radner, and she had died tragically from breast cancer in her early 40s in 1989, and she looked exactly like she always had in real life. You know, she wasn't a woman who most would call beautiful because her looks were very quirky, and she played on them really well. But as she walked up to me and I saw her, I was struck by how beautiful she was, and she looked exactly as she did in real life. But even thinking about it now, you know, it, it makes me tear up because, you know, I remember the first time I saw the Grand Canyon and I was in awe. I live near Yellowstone and the Grand Tetons, and I've spent time in at least 14 national parks, so I know natural beauty, and none of it. Nothing I have ever seen before or after, and not even my newborn sons, rivaled the sheer beauty of Gilda. She uh, she came toward me and uh, whispered to me wonderful secrets about God's love. And for the life of me, I can't remember this day what they were, of course. When I woke up, I was inconsolable. I would have given just about anything to look at her for another five minutes. And I believe that that was God showing me what a perfected resurrection body would be like. I can't prove it, but when I think back, ah, oh, long to see her again. And Paul must have been challenged to give some sort of detailed account of what we will be like. You know, people always want to know stuff that really doesn't have any importance in the here and now, right? First uh, Corinthians 15, starting in verse 35, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body will they have when they come? You fool! What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. I, I love this because I imagine Paul saying, how should I know? Do I look like I died and came back? Uh, going on, as for what you sow, you are not sowing the body that will be, but only a seed, perhaps of wheat or another grain or a tear. Uh, he didn't say that. And God gives it a body as he wants and to each of the seeds its own body. Not all seed is the same flesh. There is one flesh for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is different from that of the earthly ones. There is a splendor of the sun, another of the moon, another of the stars. In fact, one star differs from another star in splendor. So it was with the resurrection of the dead, sown in corruption, Raised in corruption, sown in dishonor, um, raised in glory, sown in weakness, raised in power, sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. In other words, Paul could have just said, 
It's not going to be exactly like what we have now, that's for sure. It'll be better, it'll be different, but it will be a body. And we've had this issue repeat through history where people will become really obsessed with what they can see and what can be proven through facts and figures. And uh, then times where we relax that sort of thinking that's been happening in scholarship lately. So that's a, that's good. Um, we've been coming out of that sort of mindset for a, for a while now. And so we don't see the same sort of higher criticism problems that are responsible for things like Lunar Sabbath and the search to find naturalistic causes behind all the plagues and that stuff. These folks were Greco-Romans, and so they absolutely believed in the divine and that gods and goddesses could do stuff. But like us, they had their boxes where they would say, but, but they can't do that based on their own comfort level and paradigms. You know, resurrection was a hard pill for Greco-Roman Gentiles to swallow. Some sort of afterlife, they could deal with that. But resurrected bodies? That was just crazy talk. But what about Paul talking about a spiritual body? Doesn't that mean a disembodied existence in heaven? More like what the Gentiles were looking for? Continuing on, verse 47. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Like the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. Like the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. What I'm saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can corruption inherit incorruption. Listen, I'm telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, trumpet. And it's not the last trump, it's not Donald Trump, all right? Or his son, or, you know, whatever. Uh, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we will be changed. For this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal body must be clothed with immortality. When this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory? Where death is your sting? Now, this is really important to, this is a really important follow up to the spiritual body statement of Paul because it qualifies it. Excuse me. We can't make the spiritual body statement mean whatever we want because this follows directly afterward. Adam was mortal. That's what it means to be made of dust. But the second man, Yeshua, is from God, and those who are joined with him in covenant become like him as well, being impervious to the second death, um, which they talk a lot about in, in Revelation. You know, he was obviously not impervious to the first death himself, but by suffering death wrongly when it had no power over him or no moral power over him, he, he emptied death of its power. And this word translated as heaven can be a euphemism for Yahweh itself, as when it was used in Psalm 6715 in the Septuagint, which is the authorized Greek translation a few hundred years before Yeshua was born. You know, otherwise it's a sort of catch-all for those things pertaining to God's kingdom. We become members of God's kingdom by becoming joined to him through the second man, Yeshua. 
Paul goes on to say that we have all borne the image of mortal fallen Adam, but we will also, also and not instead, bear the image of the Son of Man, who is himself the perfect image of Yahweh. So we will have that body, but somehow it will be different. It will be more. We aren't doing a complete trade-in for something else. Flesh and blood doesn't cut it for the final realization of heaven on earth. Our corruptible, decaying bodies and minds aren't suited for the kingdom of heaven as they are now. Now, it is clear by reading Paul's letters to various churches that his ideas change over time about the imminence of the return of Yeshua. <clears throat> you know, Paul in a lot of places really seems to think it'll be very soon. And in that, he has a lot in common with a whole lot of wrong people over the ages, including throughout my lifetime and, you know, now as well. Paul was inspired, but that doesn't mean he had a good bead on everything, and that's okay. He was writing letters stating his beliefs to those congregations who were facing issues we are largely ignorant of. When he says we will not all fall asleep, he isn't talking about people 2,000 years later. He really thinks it will be soon, although he will modify that as the years go by. But that's a side issue because we're talking about resurrection. He states that we will be changed, not replaced. That our, in, that our corruptible body will be will not be replaced, but will be clothed with a new nature that is incorruptible. And our mortal body will be altered in order to be immortal. After all, if there was no body, then death isn't defeated. Death still won. Death took our bodies, and we're just left with being spirit beings. And if we're just spirit beings, then death can just laugh and point at our corpse, say, yeah, you exist, but you're not actually alive. Okay, and that right there is what, it's why the resurrection of Jesus is so important, Yeshua. Death didn't win. Death had a minor victory when the champ took a dive. Death believed it had won. The Romans believed they had won. The chief priests believed they had won. They had poured all their authority and hatred and power into killing Yeshua. They did their worst. They inflicted the most fear, death in the ancient world on uh, Yeshua, and instead of him staying dead the way everyone else had, innocent, guilty, or whatever, um, he rose again, imperishable, changed, different, perfected, impervious to the second death. It was though he came out of the grave, shook his fist at Satan, and said, is that all you got? It wasn't enough. You're done. Defeated. From now on, everyone who knows me will know that you weren't strong enough. The strong man was too weak to conquer the Son of Man. You used up all of yourself, and I came out stronger. I won. And because you're defeated, the new creation existence of humanity begins now. And the resurrection had to happen in order for people to know that death has been reduced to a sideshow. Resurrection had to happen for God to be able to prove that he is the righteous and just God who delivers real justice to those who love him. And real justice requires that the enemy doesn't get to keep the bodies that he's used for his purposes. Means that we get back what was misused and abused and harmed. 
It means that our minds don't get replaced, but they're renewed. No wheelchairs, no leg braces, no fake knees or shunts or crutches, no brain damage, nothing we experience in this world. God is going to free us from everything that has oppressed us and return us to what we should have been, which is a blessing, okay? People who are hurting on the outside won't hurt anymore, and people who hurt on the inside won't hurt either. All the tragic things that have happened to us, they won't bother us ever again. If we were simply raised from the dead like Lazarus, it would be totally different. He still had the exact same body and memories, but not us. If we were just disembodied spirits, that wouldn't be justice either. God gave our bodies so that we would be his hands and feet and mouth and ears so that we could enjoy hugs and laugh and listen to music, taste the fruit of the garden. Justice means that people who spent their life paralyzed will get to run and swim and dance. Justice means that a deaf mom will finally hear her child say the words, I love you, mama. Justice means that the people who were wrongly taken from us will be in our lives again. Justice means that the earth will be renewed and that there will be no more hunger or violence or oppression. Justice means so many things. The things God meant for us to love and enjoy with him in the beginning, but were stolen from us by rebellion and sin, a lot of it our own. Without the resurrection, our lives that are full of injustice now will remain unjust. Wrongs will not be righted. Everything good that God wanted for us will never happen. Evil people might live to be a hundred years old and babies will die and nothing will ever happen to make things right. In fact, without the resurrection, things will remain wrong for all time. Evil wins, death wins. And when people do that, they will do absolutely anything to save their own lives. You know, and that makes them useless for the kingdom. Now, a problem that a lot of people have is that we talk about the resurrection, but we don't live like we really believe it. And you know, when that was me, my voice is really starting to get, starting to go. Um, you know, it was, that was me, uh, until a number of years ago when I read an excellent book, N.T. Wright's Evil and the Justice of God. And that book really changed my life for a lot of reasons. Um, I was so obsessed with getting justice in this life, with getting even, with being vindicated in the here and now, because I had no real conception that this wasn't all to my life, okay? You see, if this is all there is, then we need to be afraid to die. You know, we need to get revenge while we can. Or we need to play it safe. But when we know that Yeshua is the first fruits of many, then we really can let this life go. We can forgive. We can turn the other cheek and be meek. We can bless our enemies. We can do good for those who do evil. We can even die so that others can live, but we can't do any of that 
while we are obsessed with survival because we don't really believe what the Bible says about God's love and justice. You know, he's got this. And so we really can trust him. You know, I never would have thought that having a different attitude about the resurrection would change everything for me. But when N.T. Wright really, really challenged his readers, and he says, do you really believe in the resurrection? And I had to say, well, gosh, I guess I don't. Because I really feel like I have to get what I need to get in this life. I, you know, I have to take care of my bucket list. I have to make sure that um, the things that were done wrong to me, you know, um, are vindicated. I, I need to make people pay for how they've hurt me. Um, if I die without doing that, then, you know, it's a lost opportunity. But it was, um, it was basically a lack of trust. And that's what faith is. It's, it's trust that, um, God's plans are for the best and they're going to work out even when we don't like them, which we often do not because, uh, no one consulted me. But <laughs> anyway, I, I highly recommend that book. N.T. Wright's Evil and the Justice of God. Anyway, um, you know, on that Sunday morning, Yom HaBikurim, Yeshua presented himself as that Bikurim offering, that first fruits offering. And when he did, it changed everything. And so, you know, I, I just hope you'll say with me, you know, he is risen. He is risen indeed. <laughs>